Let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with our most gracious favor and further us with that continual help that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in thee we may glorify thy holy name and finally by thy mercy obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Clean the seats, guys, if you'd like to have a seat up here. The theme of the class that we started last Sunday, and we'll first of three part, just being the second part, uh, is what would Jesus have to say to the church today? Uh, considering the, what I would call, radical revision of the classic faith once handed down to the saints, not only at Episcopal Church, but in many churches uh, that we see it was very interesting to know what the various people in the church, uh, have to, how, how they would answer that question and what their opinions are about the church. And also uh, people outside of the church, but who are observing outside uh, the church, have their opinions on, on, on the church today. But um, really, what could be more important uh, than what Jesus has, would have to say to the church today? And that's, that's a, a question uh, about which we do not have to purely speculate because we, we have the Bible. We have the New Testament. We have St. Paul's epistles, certainly, to the various churches that he wrote and what he wrote about the churches and, and other epistles. We have the book of Acts, where certainly we can learn from the history of the church. But above all, I believe, we have the first three chapters of the book of Revelation uh, in which Jesus speaks to the church. Quote, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, to the churches. That, that verse, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is stated seven times in the second and the third chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, this is just a very short review of what we discussed in, in great detail last Sunday. There were certainly more than seven churches uh, in and around the Mediterranean world by the time this book was written, Revelation was written. But these are the chosen churches. And these seven churches are located on the western shore, western seaboard of what we would now what we now call Turkey Ephesus Smyrna Pergamum Theatira Sardis Philadelphia and Laodicea these seven churches that's the order in which they come in the book of Revelation uh, and they are mentioned uh, in the order in which a messenger uh, might visit if that messenger were commissioned to deliver the letters, this is the order in which that, and this is the kind of the logical route that he would take. And you go from Ephesus uh, right on then to Smyrna, Pergamum, and right on around. When you get to, to the final Laodicea, then you would have made kind of a, an irregular uh, circle, an irregular loop. Uh, commentators have, have uh, very rightly taken note of the number seven. Seven is significant, not only here, but Throughout the Bible, as a matter of fact, and certainly in the book of Revelation, seven is a symbol of completeness, 
Seven is a, is a symbol of wholeness. So we are, in fact, dealing with seven specific historic churches in Asia at a certain time, at a certain point in history. But they are also, uh, this, this number seven churches also re- represent churches uh, in all ages, in all times. So the words that we find here, the words of encouragement, words of uh, uh, warning, uh, admonishment, and exhortation are written uh, to specifically these seven churches, but they are also written uh, just as meaningful, uh, meaningfully to churches of all ages and certainly to us today. When we are oppressed, when we are threatened from hostile forces from outside of the church, what we'll find here as we study these, these letters to the churches are, are hope uh, and assurance that, as we kind of picked up in the theme and rather day today, that God is calling the shots and we're not just up to, gosh, don't we hope things work out okay? That's not the way it is. And that's one thing we find in, in, these, in these letters to these churches that, hey, uh, guess who's in charge here? And I'm going to remind you of that. And so you find when the hostile forces are arrayed against us from outside of the church, we, we find that hope uh, and security that only God can give us. When there is error and where there, there are problems uh, and sin within the church, then what we're going to find in these letters are words that shame us. And what we hope is that they will shame us, not so we'll go around with our head low and our postures in a depressed position, disposition, but that they will shame us into repentance and shame us uh, into health if his words are taken to heart. So the, fir- the focus uh, of this, this little short series is not only on how the church has gone bad but and how it continues to go wrong, but on what we can learn from Jesus' words to uh, help us to persevere and help us to move forward in ministry. Last week, we worked through the first chapter with all of its symbolism. So if, if, if you weren't here and if you have the time, I would encourage you to go back and see if you can, if you can pick it up or, or take, take the first chapter and study it and study it on your own with a good commentary. Uh, Alvin Ross, I know he's, he's beginning the series in, in, on, on Monday here for those who take his courses, and that would be an excellent way. But the first, the first chapter serves as just an important and meaningful introduction uh, to what will follow here in chapter 2 and 3, but also, in fact, to the whole book. But let's just jump right in here uh, to the, the first letter who is, is addressed to the church at Ephesus. And now we're going to go just as far as we can here this morning and see, see where it takes us. Now, it, we begin with Ephesus for no other reason than Ephesus is the closest church, the closest city uh, to Patmos, which is where John was in exile. Uh, it's the closest one, closer than any other of the cities. Ephesus, by the way, is, it was a prosperous city, a prosperous business city. It, it was situated on a trade route uh, they went from there all the way to Rome. I mean, it was it was big. You know, the Galleria Mall would have been there in Ephesus, if you know what I mean. I mean, it was just it was just right uh, for for business. And we know that it was from prison in Paul that he wrote his epistle, uh, the Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul realized the strategic importance 
of this church in, in Ephesus. So F, the church at Ephesus was important uh, to Paul because, because uh, there was uh, strategically uh, it, it would, would help him to get the word of the gospel out to the world. He spent, we know from Acts that he spent probably two to three, we'll say two and a half years, he spent in the city itself and, and, and where he was preaching and visiting people. In fact, he was so successful that we know from the 19th chapter of Acts, Paul was so successful in his preaching ministry, in his teaching ministry in Ephesus, that a riot broke out. Now, you can read this in Acts chapter 19. And the reason why the riot broke out was because uh, Princess Diana, you know, one of the goddess temples, you know, there, there, were, there, there were pagan temples everywhere. But this one, Princess Diana, uh, silver models of her church were, were sold, and they, and they typically sold uh, very well. But when people were being converted, then the sales dropped off. And so the business people were trying to do something with Paul, who was converting people, and then they, they weren't buying these, these silver uh, replicas of, of the, the temple. So it's right there in, in, in Acts 19, if you think I'm making that up. It's, it's really, it's really uh, uh, a very fascinating. So what we do now, if you, if you take that picture there, what was going on in Ephesus, and you kind of fast forward now for three decades, four decades later, because this would be John now. John is being asked to write, to write these words to the church there at Ephesus uh, that we see in uh, uh, verse 2-2. Two, two. Uh, I know your works. How, I mean, how would you like to get a letter from Jesus in the morning? The first thing he says, and you should read the first one, I know your works. I know your secrets. I know your desires. Uh, I, I, I know your thoughts. And I have this to say to you, as you see there in, in, in verse 2. I know your works. You're tall. You're patient. Endurance. And I have this to say to you, uh, where I'm here. Uh, the, words who, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand. We talked about that in the first chapter who walks among the seven lamp stands, the, gold, the seven golden lamp stands. They, 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 they are the church. The church is the light of the world, not because they have a light, because they reflect the gospel light. This is the moon reflects the light of the sun. These churches are the seven lamp stands. And Jesus, one like a son of man, stands in the middle of the lamp stands. I know your works, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not apostles. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing one up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So, as we see the first three verses there, the letter starts off in a very positive note. But if you just glance down real quickly to the, to the fourth verse, you see there's a but there. However, I don't know about you, but I, when I get emails a lot of times, it starts off, you know, Dear Dean Limehouse, and it starts off really nice, but I always look down for the but. Because <laughs> normally there's a but there somewhere. Uh, uh, and it, uh, a whole bunch of the times, uh, and I look for the however, uh, I have this against you. So, so uh, uh, that, that's, uh, that's something that uh, you, you notice here. But let's don't go on the, on the butt right now. Let's back up and, and, and focus on the good stuff. It's very obvious, Desi, I know your works, you're tall. Uh, it's obvious that the Ephesians here in the church were hard workers. I, I get the sense uh, that they were very active in outreach. I get the sense that they were very active in inreach. I get the sense that what we would now have the soup kitchens and they were visiting the shut-ins. They were obviously very diligent uh, in doing good works on hands-on ministry. In verse 2, it refers to their endurance. Uh, they had stood firm against these pagans they had, that, that, uh, and against bad teaching. 
It refers to their steadfastness in rejecting false prophets. Now, Jesus, as we see in verse 6, will refer to the Nicolaitans. We, we don't know exactly who these guys were, except to say that they were false teachers. I don't care how sincere they were. I'm sure they were sincere, but they were just bad teachers. It was false doctrine. Uh, and they are mentioned. They will be mentioned again as we go to the letters to Pergamum. Uh, but in the epistle to the uh, Ephesians that we know in Paul's uh, epistle to the Ephesians, we know that he had warned them that there would be a lot of there would be a lot of bad teaching, and that this teaching would would, would uh, uh, work its way into the various churches uh, throughout Asia. Uh, and we don't know much about who these people were, but we know enough to know that that they were seriously mistaken. And also, they were mistaken in condoning immorality. It's very obvious from what we can put the pieces together. But the members of the church had stood firm. They said, no, we're not going there. It says here that they tested the spirits. They tested, their, they tested what these teachers were saying against the scriptures. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. And then comes the but. Now, this but is not one of the pretty buts, I, you know, in, in the New Testament. I, and I know uh, I wrote a sermon one called, called Beautiful But, uh, and that was the name of it. But uh, the, the guys on the, on the website said that I needed to change the name of it. So, so I changed it to, to But God. But originally it was a beautiful gut, a beautiful but, because in, in that particular case, St. Paul was talking about uh, the, the a desperate human situation. But God did something about it. And that's why it was a beautiful but. But in this case, this is not a beautiful but. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I, you know, I think of the, the verse from Jeremiah that's, that's really neat. Uh, it says, I remember the devotion of your youth, says the Lord. Your love is a bride that you had for me, and that had waned. That love that a bride would have for a husband on a honeymoon was what? what they had first experienced, but that had, that had begun to, 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 uh, to not be as intense, not be as passionate. God, you know, in the Bible is often likened his relationship to the church as a bride to the bridegroom. And verse 4, by the way, is remarkably played out in the book of Hosea. If you get a chance to read Hosea, this is, this is really uh, how this verse is played out. Uh, as God says, God is a jealous God. And to some people, that they, they kind of, you know, God is not a jealous God. That's kind of yucky to think of jealousy being a bad word. But, you know, what more, what more beautiful thing can God just say to you personally, leave alone to the church, but to you personally, that God is jealous of you. When you put things before him, that God is actually jealous. I don't know what greater compliment you could have than for you to know that God is jealous of you. Uh, and I, I've often said, you know, if, 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 I do, if I have meandering eyes or whatever and Jane is not even Jane could care left what I do, I then, you know, what does that say about my relationship with her? Uh, it, 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 I want my wife to be jealous of me uh, at any rate. <clears throat> now, I don't know. What, if God is a jealous God. And he is saying here, I have this against you. You abandon the love that you first had. He's talking about the love that they had for him. And so despite their outreach, despite their inreach, despite their, all, of their, all their doings, the good works that they, that they were doing, their love had grown cold. And I don't care how much you do, if, if, it's, if it's not uh, undergirded by love, uh, then they're what they call the Bible, Bible call them dead works. They're evil works, like the Nicolaitans and the, 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 
the Balaamites and Jezebel and her people will all be talking about these people in these letters. Those are evil works. Dead works are things that in and of themselves are just fine, but when there's no love there, they're dead. They're just, they're just works. God is glad that the stomachs are fed, but as far as your works pleasing God, they're dead. And then, of course, there are good works. Good works are done in light of the gospel of Jesus, and then they become meaningful. But what we see here in, in, in Ephesians, apparently, that that love that Jesus so cherishes out of his people had, had grown cold. There's so many pop songs that I could sing right now and quote, but, I, you know, your love has grown cold, you know, this, please help me. Uh, but I won't, I won't do that. So, but, but what he'll do in verse 6, now he's going to return to the orthodoxy. Yet you do have this, and he goes back to the. He said, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, he didn't say he hated the Nicolaitans. He said he hated their works. And that's, that's, a, that's a distinction that's made throughout the Bible. God loves a sinner, hates the sin. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who conquers, I will grant him to eat the, the, uh, the tree of life, now, which is in the paradise of God. That, by the way, is the same, true, the same fruit tree from which fruit we were forbidden to eat in the Garden of Eden. And now it says, he who perseveres, who remains victorious, we can return after that tree and now actually eat it if we remain steadfast. So let me just stop. That's, that's the first, that's the letter to the Ephesians. And, you know, you have to, somehow or another, and we'll go through all seven churches and we'll have time perhaps to reflect. But somehow or another, God speaks to us pretty powerfully here, I think. I, what, I mean, what would God say to the Advent? You know, and maybe you can think about what you think Jesus would say to the Advent. But I think these things, I, t- I, take, the, I take these pretty seriously as I begin to imagine what, what he might say to us at the Advent. I'm encouraged here to tell you the truth, but there's some caveats also uh, that we get, can get so busy and uh, maybe even a little smug in our perseverance that we ain't going there. We reject that teaching. We're not going to do this. And I think God is, well, he tells us. I, I, he, he's thankful. But I have this against you. And then I wonder what that would be. Well. Huh? Yeah. I expect so from you. <laughs> now, the church at Smyrna, that's entirely different. The church at Smyrna had not lost their love for the bridegroom. Uh, the church at Smyrna was different. I, I, I think if there's any church that's not uh, like the Advent would be Smyrna, they were really being afflicted. It was in a different situation here. There are many churches that I am sure they can find great strength and hope here. Uh, this was a persecuted church. I think of our friend Ben Quashi. For those of you who know Ben Quashi. I, I, and I think of uh, my friend uh, Christopher in Ireland. And I and to be honest with you, I, think, I also think some people in some dioceses that are being persecuted uh, by the churches. I, I, we, we have not. We may. We may. So let's let's keep this letter close by. It, you know, the day may be coming, but at least now we're not afflicted and suffering like these guys at Smyrna. Uh, verse eight: Angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know your poverty, but you are rich. When we get to Laodicea, he will say, I know you're rich, 
but you're really poor. <laughs> so what we have, the opposite here, Laodicea is rich, and they don't know they're poor. These people were poor, and Jesus is reminding them that they are really rich. It says, uh, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not Jews, they are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Mercy. These were people, they, probably, they had Jewish blood, okay, but they didn't have Jewish hearts. He's talking about authentic Judaism, uh, God's precious Israel. Uh, the, the, these, they think they're chosen people. They, their bloodline may say that they are the chosen people, but you know what? They are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear, verse 10, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw out some of you into prison uh, that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. Now, 10 days, what does that refer to? You know, the, the issue here is God's calling the shots, right? He knows how long they're going to suffer. I mean, he could have said 10 months, but the, the, the whole thing here is... This is not just happening. This is not just fate. God is in control. He will decide how much you suffer. He will decide when you suffer. He will decide how long you will suffer. Study the book of Job. What could be more clear as you study what is called theodicy, the studying of evil in a, in a all, in vis-a-vis an all-loving God? How is that possible? Remember, and, and Job has to get permission from the devil. I had to get the permission from God the devil had to get permission from God to, to, to test Job, to, to, to bring the suffering to him. And all you see here is it's all controlled by God. So he, he says, yeah, okay, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for 10 days, what you're going to do. And you find here a great letter of hope. He who has an ear, verse 11, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That uh, apparently refers to the termination of life hell, they're saying they will not be hurt by the second death. This is the promise of eternal life. So there's so many epistles that Paul writes that you think of this in, in Romans. Uh, the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to glory to be revealed to us. You know, he goes and mentions all these terrible things. He says, we are conquerors. We are more than conquerors. You know, in, in Romans chapter 8 when he says, we're not just conquerors, that they are more than conquerors. And he always stops and says, where in the world Paul get that kind of that, that kind of hope, you know? Is it, is it just because he read self-help books? Does he have just a power of positive thinking? Or what, you know, was he doing drugs? What what was going on? You know, what the guy was just so absolutely positive that Jesus Christ had died, that he was raised again, that he was in control. And let me tell you what, nothing in this world will have the last word. God will have the last word, and that's what we just what that's what the, the this this poor. Uh, church here, Smyrna, uh, that's what was in the letter. Then we go to Pergamum. The words of him who has a two-edged sword. I love that one. You know what the two-edged sword is. We learned that in Hebrews. I know where you dwell. Now, you remember he said, Jesus said he stands in the midst of the lampstand. So uh, not only does God omniscient, he knows everything, but literally in, in, in Revelation, he stands in the middle of the seven lampstands. So, yes, he knows where, where Satan's throne is. He knows you stand there. Uh, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. So Jesus is aware 
that the, that the church at Pergamum was uh, in a hostile culture, uh, to use the biblical language. He's aware that their little boat is being knocked down by, by, by bad winds. Everywhere you look, by the way, in Pergamum, there were temples. Everywhere you look, there was... A, there, in fact, if you, if you take a tour of these seven churches, uh, you won't find the churches there, but you can see a lot of the remains. And one another thing, you see the remains of these, these old pagan temples. There was one there that was a pagan temple of Zeus. Uh, Istil is there and Augustus. Uh, but Jesus is writing Pergamon and says, you know, despite all this pagan influence, you have held firm, and I, th- and I thank you for that. So uh, what, what I think we heard, yes, the love is important. Now, Ephesus apparently didn't have the love, uh, but, and love is, is paramount, but where there is no truth, uh, then the love is saccharine. There cannot be true Christianity without truth, and that's what the Pergamon people had stood for. Uh, was truth and doctrine. You know, it says when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus was full of, of truth and grace. So he's 100% love. He's also 100% truth. And you hear uh, some people say, why can't we just love each other? You know, have, how many times have you heard that? Ad nauseum. I, I don't know about you, but in, 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 in my circle, in, in, my, in my dealings uh, with, with, with the church and and. And, and what's going on around us. Why can't we just love each other? And, but you see, that's, 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 it sounds nice, but where, they, where there is no truth, that's what we see here going on in these letters. Where there is no truth, then the love is just vacuum. It's not, it's not real. And this Antipas, whoever he is, the, in, in the Greek Orthodox Church, there are many traditions on, on who this guy was. We don't really know, but what we do know is he was martyred, and he was martyred for the truth. And so whether you can have differences of opinion, don't get me wrong, we can have differences of opinion about whether we should reverence the cross across ourselves or, or, uh, or stand up or kneel or, or when you take communion. That, that's no, no big deal. But when, this, when, when the difference of opinion or concerning crucial doctrines, a cru- crucial part of our doctrine, then, then well, Antipas died for it. And, and what we see Jesus here is, I, I know this, and and uh, and I'm, I'm writing to encourage you. But has the but? I have a few things against you. Apparently, uh, even though this was they were so strong for the truth. Apparently, some had been intrigued with uh, the teachings of Balaam. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament? He was an evil prophet. And he, he uh, taught Balak, who was, who was the king, to, he taught him how to, to make things bad for Israel by enticing the Israelites with prostitutes and enticing them with uh, eating food that had been sacrificed uh, to a model, to, to, to idols. So, so it's, uh, some of them uh, had also holding teaching of the Nicolaitans. There they are again. He says, repent. If not, I will come uh, to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. So, Jesus calls them uh, to repentance. Whoever these, this little pocket of the church there uh, at Pergamum, he called them into repentance. If not, then judgment will come. There's one thing we can be sure about the scriptures is that judgment is, is for real. I find, and may, it may not be true of you, that people are more concerned about dying than they are judgment. That's, you know, I, and I more concerned about death than they are judgment. But 
Unless you've been washing the blood of the lamb, I'd as soon stay dead, if you ask me. That's just my two cents. <clears throat> because the just... And another thing, too. Oh, the Old Testament's full of judgment of God, and the New Testament is all, why can't we just love each other? And I said, well, you know, gosh, I'm, are we sure we're reading the same New Testament? I mean, this is in the New Testament, isn't it? And not only that, look at some of Jesus' parables. Good heavens alive. Anyway. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give names of hidden manna, whatever that means. That's apparently manna, the bread of heaven. I'll give him a white stone, whatever that means. Apparently a new beginning, a new name. With a new name, what he goes on to say, with a new name written on the stone. So you get a blank sheet, a blank stone. It's like having a new lease on life, of which no one knows but him who receives it. So truth is important. Now, the longest, the longest of the seven letters was written to the church in the smallest city, Thyatira. You remember Lydia, <clears throat> one of my favorite characters in, in the New Testament? Lydia was from Thyatira. Now, Lydia, <clears throat> as we know from Acts, was a shrewd businesswoman. Uh, and Lydia was involved in the dye business. And at Thyatira, they, had, they were known for dye, but especially the purple. Purple dye, which was very much cherished uh, by the Romans. Uh, and she had made, apparently, a tremendous living uh, in the dye business, and, specific, and, and especially the purple dye. Well, she made a trip to Philippi, <clears throat> a business trip. And she was a, she was a European. She, she was a Gentile. And, but she had apparently converted to Judaism, and she made a trip to Philippi, and it just so happens that Paul, the Apostle Paul, and his, his uh, colleague, uh, Barnabas, were preaching, and Paul, it says Paul was down by the riverside, and Lydia went to down by the riverside and heard Paul preach, and she was converted, and she asked to be Baptist. It, said, it says, and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. And so Lydia was baptized. <clears throat> so what we think is that she then returned to Thyatira, and she was the, the matriarch of this church here in Thyatira. And by the time this book was written, <clears throat> that church had become a prosperous church. 18, to the church <clears throat> in Thyatira. Thyatira, right, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We talked about this in the first chapter. All this has is amazing symbolism here. I know your works. Here we go. Your love, that's important. It's, you know, they, they, he didn't say that to the Ephesians. I know your love and then your faith and your service and your faithful endurance and that your latter works exceed your first works. The things you're doing now are even better than things you used to do. That's all, man, isn't that nice? Uh-oh, here we come. But <clears throat> I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. At least some, not all of them now. As we read on, we'll see. Not all of them, but some of them, some of the guys in the church had said, you know, this Jezebel is an interesting character. Let's get in bed with her. Who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols.
There's a lot here we don't know as, as we read on. But it's not good news for those who, who want to, uh, want to <clears throat> fall at Jezebel's feet and learn from her and, as he says, get in bed with her, commit adultery with her. Uh, Jezebel, of course, was a real woman in, in the church there at Thyatira. However, Jezebel is also symbolic. And if you know Jezebel from the Old Testament, you know the story of Jezebel, right? Anyone have a loved one named Jezebel? Maybe a mother-in-law <clears throat> named Jezebel. I don't. I, I just, I'm really, I, I, does anyone know anybody named Jezebel? Uh-oh. I had a bird dog named Jezebel. Oh, that's good. <clears throat> that's good. She was really good. Yeah. Well, I, you know, my cat Shadrach, I, I, uh, I, had, I, had, I would have named Jezebel, except that, that, that Shadrach was a he, and so I couldn't do it. But I wanted to. She pushed her medal. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, King Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. A queen Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, and she ruled the roost. Uh, and, uh, you know, she'd been dead for a century by the time this was written, but her, and, and she met a dreadful end, uh, but her spirit uh, lives on in the church, and the spirit of Jezebel lives on in the church today. Like I say, this, is, this was written to the church in a certain time and certain history, but it's also written uh, to the church of all ages. Jezebel of Thyatira, she, I'm sure she was sincere, uh, but she, what her problem is she called evil good. Uh, and she influenced others to call evil good. And the final analysis says here, all that are metaphorically in bed with her uh, will see God's judgment. Uh, uh, and that judgment will be from the only one who searches and knows the mind and heart. So holiness here uh, is, uh, you know, the love is there and the service is there, uh, but also uh, they had, <clears throat> the church there had allowed some of this uh, Jezebel influence to, uh, to get in there, but into the church. But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold fast to this teaching, you have anything to worry about. What does any other burden mean? It means that any other burden that we don't ordinarily, we all carry burdens, but it will be a no additional burden. Hold fast, verse 25, until I come. He who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give him the power of the nations, and he shall rule them with an iron, with a rod of iron, and with earthen pots of broken in pieces, even as I myself receive power from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. We've got two promises here if we'll hold fast against the teachings of Jezebel. One, we'll end up having power over the nations and we'll rule them with, an iron, with a rod of iron. That's all messianic kind of talk as you see in Psalms, in the, in the second Psalm, where in the, in the messianic age, uh, the Messiah will, will, will rule all the nations and all of the Messiah's people, all that have come to the Messiah, they will also rule and they will rule with a with a rod of iron, all messianic uh, a talk. But then this second promise, those who hold fast teaching will give, I will give you the morning star. And I know you get tired of me talking about the morning star, uh, but it was out there again today. Uh, you know, I, I just, uh, it just, uh, it just tugs at my heart to go out on a pretty morning before the sun is up, like this morning, uh, and find the morning star. Uh, and just look at it, and you see the morning star. Jesus said, I am the morning, I'm the bright morning star. 
And he, he, it's obviously symbolism that I will usher in a new day. It's dark, but here I am, and I will usher in a new day. The sun is coming in which there will be light. Uh, and to, to look at the morning star, and when you say your prayers and you say, I am the morning star, come Lord Jesus, and just say, come Lord Jesus. And it's something very, at least for me, it's very powerful. So, but here it says, not only we look at it, but it says, I will give you the morning star. <laughs> You know, I, I'll give it to you. Uh, that's that to me is just one of the most powerful things that I read. So anyway, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now next next Sunday we're going to go to the final three letters, uh, and they they are they are good ones. But I think what the, the, one of the recurring themes that we see here is warning against tolerating bad teaching. Warning against tolerating false prophets. That's one thing. There's just over and over and over again we see that. And then also the exhortation that love is paramount. Also that love, not only for sound doctrine, but love for Jesus himself that needs to be paramount. And that love has to be has to be combined with and accompanied by truth because you can't have one without the other. Love and truth that we see here. And that seems to be a recurring theme to what we see other than the letter to, to the church at Smyrna that we see going over and over again. And we'll see it come back up in the, the third the third three. And I, so far, I don't know. I kind of identify with Ephesus. I don't know about you. I'd love to know what you think, what Jesus is saying to the Advent in, in these letters. And we get the Laodicea. We will see a little advent there too, I think, particularly. Huh? Yeah. Absolutely. I think we'll see it. It just, whoa. Anyway, the time is up. So I hope to see you next next Sunday. Did y'all like the rally skip? Was it, uh, oh, yeah. you like? You never know up there. You know, we practiced it on Thursday, and I just said, this is going to flop. <laughs> this ain't no good. So, but anyway, we, we got through it. Carol Langford will not be writing it. Uh, next year, I, I, I'm just so grateful to to her ministry. She's in San Francisco. When you get a chance, tell her thanks. She says she's retiring from this now. However, a new hire, you know, the the vacancy was created by Joe Warren. Uh, it, it's on the website now. Go to the website and you learn a little about it. But she spent four years in New York in the in the in the uh, theater industry, uh, and she was uh, an aspiring actress. She made a commercial or two, but never got the big time. But she knows that industry and so. Uh, one of the things that we'll be doing as soon as she gets here, we'll have a clergy retreat. We talk about who's going to do what and so forth. And guess who's going to get her? Guess who's going to get the skit, the rally skit? She's going to start in it. She's going to produce it. That's for sure. And if Deborah, if you're listening, then that's uh, uh, this is the first you would have heard of it. But God be with you. <coughs> Let us go forth into the world, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.